You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Stick Together. I'm your host, James Brennan. I'd like to begin today's show by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're broadcasting from today, the people of the Kulin Nation. I want to pay my respect to their elders past and present and pass that respect on to any Aboriginal people listening to the show today. Thank you also to 3CR for their support in producing this show. Thanks to your local community radio station that you might be listening to this episode on across the community radio network that brings us this show to stations across the country. On this week's show, we're going to hear an excerpt from Clifton de Rosario, who is an elected leader of the Communist Party Marxist-Leninist Liberation in India. He's involved in workers' and union struggles in India, and in this talk he speaks about the fight to save democracy in India and the creeping fascism of Modi. This talk was recorded at the Eco-Socialism Conference that took place in Melbourne in June 2023, and it's a part of a larger panel discussion that happened on the issue. Thank you, and I'll speak to you at the end of the show. This is actually a little bit uh, difficult, you know, to talk about this. And we really love our country. I mean, India is really a great country in that sense. My friend Deepak over here last evening, we were just having a chat and his fond memories of, of India as well. And most unfortunately, we are at this juncture where uh, there's literally the battle for the idea of India that is going on. And this, in that, in that sense, is going to be quite crucial as to who comes through at this. Because that's going to determine... That's going to determine many things. It's going to determine what the rights of the general populations are going to be. It's going to determine how the religious minorities are going to live in the country. It's going to determine how the, uh, what, the, uh, what kind of space uh, indigenous communities have over there. It det- it's going to determine uh, the working class, what kind, of, uh, you know, how, what kind of a life the working class is going to have. It's going to determine everything in that sense. So which is why, you know, more often than not, what we say that this is really not, this is not about a man. This is not about Narendra Modi as a person. This is beyond that. This is a battle for the soul of that country. And uh, as you know, somebody who is deeply committed to the country, to the people, and to the various struggles that all of us, the tradition of resistance, the tradition of change uh, that we come from. So we look at this juncture at India with that sense of great concern as to you know, what happens from here. And of course, then you're not sitting you know, idle. You're also then part of this entire battle that's taking place there. Um, so a lot of us and a lot of people, I think, across the country, across the world, are looking at India with great... Um, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a curiosity. There's some kind, of a, uh, you know, some kind of a questioning. They're trying to see what is happening. They're trying to make sense of what is happening over there. And I think for us, uh, we, we, we say that fascism is upon us in India, and we have a particular reason for that. Now, something that I've said on umpteen occasions, you call it whatever you want. You want to call it authoritarianism, please you know, be my guest. You want to call it majoritarianism, you can go ahead. You call it what you want. But there are certain features of this particular regime which are absolutely essential that we don't ignore. And those are the features that I want to, you know, I kind of just lay it out before you and then I guess, you know, everyone is a judge for themselves. Uh, very curiously, when before I came in, I was just speaking to Sam. I was trying to understand also this relationship that India has with uh, uh, with with Australia, at least in terms of uh, foreign policy. Of course, there's the big the boss and Albanese and that entire kind of you know the diaspora being uh, mobilized. 
in that sense, rehabilitate Modi's kind of, uh, you know, his, his, his public image. But there's much more beyond that. So I came across this report by Peter Verghese, who's the chancellor of the University of Queensland. So it appears that in 2017, the then Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, had sought that a report be prepared on the kind of, um, on, on the kind of economic strategy that Australia can have with, the, with, with India. So it's a very, very big report. It's more than 500 pages. I request all of you all to look at it. But what struck me there is this. That, of course, you know, the point being made in that report is that, see, there's a massive economic kind of an opportunity, trade opportunity, that Australia should not miss. But there's a one paragraph which really, you know, kind of caught my attention, which I want to read out. So it says, this is at page 7 of that report. From Australia's perspective, it is India's liberal, democratic, and secular character which provides a foundation for this evolving strategic uh, con congruence. Some worry that this defining and tested feature of India is under strain. That seems an exaggerated fear at this time. But anything which materially weakens India's democratic credentials or its commitments to a secular liberal society would not only be a tragedy for India, but also calls into question the very basis of a strategic partnership. So I think, you know, Mr. Albanese will have to be shown this report and will have to be told, you know, I mean, so what, how is this now affecting our relationship? So anyway, coming to, uh, to the, at least the subject at hand, um, fascism, I mean, there's a lot of theory on fascism, and I'm sure, you know, most people are well aware of it. If you were to look at, say, how when fascism emerged as, a, as an ideology, as a political ideology, as a regime, as a kind of a state, we are looking at basically the interwar period, where, of course, you know, Mussolini, uh, 1919, and then, of course, the march on Rome, and 22, when he takes, uh, when, he, when he captures power. And there's a, there's a fantastic uh, piece that he's written on fascism in 1932, which is an absolutely necessity, I think, for anyone to read, to try and understand at least that regime. So you have fascism uh, that really evolves in Europe during that time, and it takes on different textures in different states. So in Germany, you have Hitler, and then you have a very, very different form of fascism. You have in Austria, you have, uh, you have a fascism in, 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 in Spain, and several other nations. So this one, I think the one point that I'd like to make here is this, that how is it that fascism just came about suddenly at that juncture? And for many of us, I think, you know, it's obviously related to the Russian Revolution. It happens in 1917. There obviously is a crisis. There's also this entire euphoria, you know, that there is another world that is possible. And you have this kind of a ideology that, is, that's, uh, that crops up, which is thoroughly ultra-nationalist, deeply anti-liberal, and effectively anti-Marxist. It is anti-Marxist from, uh, from the very go. So you have this entire trend that comes, and of course this is a trend that's, that's developed across, that develops across Europe, culminating in the, in the, uh, in the war and the, the defeat of Hitler. And it, I guess it's uh, thereafter that we realize, you know, the kind, of, uh, the kind of inhumanities that were heaped over there. But going a step back, I think uh, even when uh, when, when Mussolini was coming to power, or rather was walking himself into power, Gramsci came out with a very interesting thesis at that point, identifying the various characteristics of Italian fascism uh, as he saw it at that point. And one thing that he, he definitely said, oh, this is not something ordinary. This is something that's out of the ordinary. And this is something that we need to be conscious about. A very similar caution is then 
made by Clara Zetkin. And this is in the 1923. And actually, Zetkin's piece, I think, is, is it's a very short piece, very succinct. I think it's extremely, um, uh, very, very informative. It really points you in the, uh, now to understand fascism. So there's the one point that she makes, that which really, you know, uh, which I feel is absolutely essential, is the mass social influence of fascism. So she then goes on to say that fascism cannot be defeated militarily alone. You have to wrestle it to the ground politically and ideologically. And then she, she identifies what she feels are the two essential features of fascism. A sham revolutionary program which links up in extremely cleverly fashion, clever fashion with the moods, interests, and demands of a broader of a broad social masses and the use of brutal and violent terror. Thereafter, of course, you, you have Dimitrov, the Bulgarian communist, most famous for being, um, he was accused in the Reichstag, um, in the Reichstag burning, he gets acquitted in that matter. And of course, he, he writes this entire thesis, uh, uh, which is presented at the seventh and last Congress of the Comintern in 1935. So what Dimitrov says, he defines the fascist state as an open terrorist dictatorship of the most imperialist, most reactionary, and ultra-nationalist section of finance capital. The report warned, uh, warned the communist movement against making the uh, making, uh, again mistaking the coming to power of a fascist regime as a standard succession of one bourgeois government by another, and also against ignoring the rise of fascist ideas and forces within the bourgeois democratic setup. But the thing with uh, Dimitrov's report is it deals with fascism at that very early stage, in the 1930s. Hitler's just come to power, is, is, is still evolving the kind of you know, things that he's doing. The final solution happens more than, you know, more than seven, eight years later. The kind of legislative changes that happen, the Nuremberg laws come post-35. So Dimitrov doesn't have that to, in, in his hand, and he's unable to see that. And what he also fails to assess is the aggressive mobilization and the movement of the masses. Of course, you know, um, after the World War II, uh, fascism gets totally discredited, and it kind of, in that sense, you know, you, you, you don't see it anywhere for, for some time. But we now say that it's making a reemergence in the global setup and definitely in India. Now, I, this is just as a background. Now, coming to India, just to give you a small, I mean, India got independence in 1947. And at that point in time, uh, the, the question was, what, what now? And so India adopted the constitution, uh, which is very, I, I would imagine in terms of uh, the state, it's quite similar. There's a federal, it's a federal structure. So you have a union government, state government, separation of powers, uh, independent judiciary, so on and so forth. So that's the kind of notion that India adopts. But the preamble, which I think, you know, is an extremely important part of the constitution to read, and in which uh, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who is this great um, uh, constitutional lawyer, fighter for the rights of uh, of the subjugated caste, he actually, uh, it's his big contribution. He talks about justice, liberty, equality, and fraternity. So these four are the, uh, in that sense, the foundational values of, of the Indian state. Now that, those foundational values, those very foundational values, are what are being called into question, or what are being dismantled at this point in time. Uh, when you talk about India, uh, the one thing that you cannot miss and which is why I said at the beginning, this is not about one person. So today, if we are saying India has reached a particular stage where there's an assault on the constitution, so on and so forth, it's because of an organization called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Dal. It would be a National Volunteer Association. This organization was formed in 1925. In 1925, 
representatives of this organization went all the way to Italy, to Rome, to meet Mussolini, to have a look at, you know, what is it that you're doing over there? So they, were, so they weren't just inspired hearing about it. They were deeply engaged in the kind of fascist uh, politics that was emerging in Europe at that point. And which is, so you see at that point, there's several things, I, mean, I won't go into details over there. Rest assured that the RSS was very, very influenced by Hitler's fascism as also uh, Nazism. And it, what is the concept that the RSS has? As Sam said, uh, the, the RSS uh, didn't take that much of a part in the freedom struggle. They didn't believe that the British was the main enemy. Because their idea was, the entire idea was different. It was like, ours is an Hindu, cult, Hindu culture. We have to protect the Hindu culture. We have to, this is a Hindu nation. So the Muslims, the Christians, I mean, you know, whatever, they're, they're there. And if they want to be there, they can, you know, we'll be paternalistic towards them. But we're not going to talk about any kind of equality. So the idea of India itself was completely different. It was totally against what the Constitution had. But this organization at that time didn't have the wherewithal to make any kind of an impact on where the country was going at the time of independence. But 100 years later, you see the effect of their work over the last century. Now coming to, uh, and this is what you know, we, we consistently say, that there is an ideological and organizational continuity to the fascist project in India. So you have this one organization, and this one organization is not just one office in one city. This is an organization which has an entire, it's called the Sangh Parivar. It has an entire family of organizations. So you want a student's organization, they have a student's organization that was formed in the 1950s. It's one of the biggest student organizations in India. You want a trade union, they have a trade union that was formed in the 1950s. It's one of the biggest trade unions in India. They have an organization for women. They have an organization for indigenous communities. They have an organization for suppressed castes. They have an organization even for Swamiji's, the religious leaders. They have an organization for women religious leaders as well. So they have an organization for every section of society. And they have, an, they have a slew of, uh, of these welfare kind of institutions, schools, hostels, that kind of a thing. So for the last 100 years, this is what they've been doing. Even though they weren't able to capture political power, they have worked in society, among every section of society, building a consensus for the idea of an India that is not equal, for an India where minorities don't have equal space, for an India where caste will continue to be perpetrated, and an India where patriarchy is not going to be questioned. So that's that imagination of a Hindu Rashtra. They have normalized that in a large section of society. So which is why I was a little worried about the time. <laughs> I tend to over prepared. I was just telling Sam, I, I, I rarely speak in English except in quotes. <laughs> You're on the streets, you know, you, you, my language is Kannada, so that's where you give your speeches. And then when you go to North India, which is like a foreign country sometimes, you speak in Hindi over there. But English you know, is really, it's really not our... Uh, not. Yeah, so I was saying that if one were to understand, you know, this, these features of what we are calling this Indian fascism, this organizational ideological continuity is something that you cannot bear. So I was also talking to my friend uh, Kokila from uh, Singapore. You know, how does one make sense? And how does one say that, uh, you know, Singapore is not fascist, but it's authoritarian? And I think for me, the way I look at it is that, of course, it's authoritarian. It's totalitarian also, maybe sometimes, you know. But the fact is that you don't, uh, there is no, this kind of an organization that has this imagination for a completely different nation. 
that is working on the ground, that is spreading a consensus, it has this army of lakhs of cadre that is going from village to village, household to household, whose only job is to just say that, hey, we are not an equal country. You know, all these people who are here, 100,000. Yeah. Okay, it's many, it's like it's really a lot of people. You can just look at it that way. And I realized this, I mean, I, I came into Australia and there were no people. <laughs> so I asked them, you know, is something wrong? There's no people. Because I think there's some 25 million, right? The population, our population is some 1.4 billion. So the scale is, it's, it's, the scale is incredible. So if you can, you know, if you imagine the length and breadth of that country, you have this organization over the last 100 years, which has worked, and it's worked in a very committed way. You'll have to, you know, obviously it's worked hard, which is why, you know, we come to this. I think uh, the second aspect, uh, which is really troubling at this point in time, is the very, is this authoritarian nature itself of this government. So you basically have a highly centralized form of government, but the decisions are not being made in parliament. The decisions are not being made by the other political parties. There's very little space that you have to, you know, to try and influence that. The decisions are made in the offices of the RSS. So they are saying what needs to be done. They are saying what policies have to be done. Of course, there's this entire side of crony capitalism and neoliberalism, and you have, and you know, these bunch of five uh, houses, you know, companies, uh, company houses that are really. Uh, you know, ruling the roost at this point in time. There is that. I'm not saying that, you know, it's all just RSS. But in terms of these fundamental policies that are defining the soul of this country, those decisions are being made by this particular organization. You also have a very centralized and autocratic form of government with executive power being primarily in the hands of Modi and Shah. Amit Shah is the home, home minister. The separation of powers among the executive, legislature, and judiciary, and between the center and the states, that is central to the constitutional foundation of our republic, are continuously undermined with the Modi regime approaching on, uh, encroaching on the powers of the states and progressively undermining the independence of judiciary. The resemblance to an authoritarian state is unmistakable, even as individual freedoms and rights are sought to be substituted by duties. Digital technologies facilitate a massive expan expansion of surveillance and are used to frame and falsely incriminate dissenters and human rights defenders, as well as to exclude the poor and the marginalized from access to resources. Indian fascism, crucially, seeks to control, regulate, and determine all aspects of society, politics, economy, culture, while exercising control over people's private lives as well. And here, I think the crucial part for us is that, you know, in India, you have this Brahminical and patriarchal caste system. I'm not going to delve into that. I'm just assuming that you know you you, you know some uh, you have some idea of it. But that form of regulation of society, where you caste system regulates a person's every decision in that sense, whether it's personal or public, who you interact with, who you don't interact with, who you eat with, who you don't eat with, who you can have a relationship with, who you can't where you can sit, where you can stand, what work you can do, what work you cannot do, where you can build your house, where you can't build your house. You know, that's the kind of a regulation that we already have. And if you look at, what, if you look at the kind of totalitarian kind of a regime, that's what it wants. It wants to control every single thing you do, every decision of yours. But for India, the template has already been set. This Brahminical and extremely patriarchal kind of class system, caste system has already set the template. So it's all the more easy now for that kind of control to be exercised in, in, in our country. This is now accentuated by the iron grip that the Modi regime exercises over, in, uh, over institutions that shape public opinion, particularly the media, which has been transformed into, into a veritable lapdog media network. 
Inspired by Mussolini, the RSS aims to mobilize the entire population towards the goals and interests for which it has a plethora of organizations, trade unions, student organization, women organization, Adivas, uh, indigenous people organization, and scores of other organizations. The Modi regime aims to haul all out democracy to the extent that the state is the supreme authority and the individuals only serve the interests it lays down. Today's significant emphasis is placed on nationalism, or rather, the Hindu supremacist defining of Hindu nationalism. Uh, in this, I mean, basically, Hindu is equal to Indian, is equal to India. So if you're a minority, there's no way you can prove your patriotism. I'm, I'm unfortunately born into a Christian family. I, I don't believe in God. But I know when I go back from here, there's, the, what I'm going to be called is a rice, rice bag convert communist. So Reisberg convert basically is the derogatory term for Christians, that you became Christian in India because you were given a rice bag and that's why you got converted. So I'll be a rice bag convert, not a Christian, not practicing, but still a rice bag convert. And of course, I'm a communist. So that's like a double whammy. So this nationalism, so if you're a communist and then if you belong to the minorities, you cannot love India. You cannot be, you know, patriotic. You cannot be a nation-loving person. It's just beyond you because this is not your motherland and your holy land. Your holy land is in Rome. You may have been born here, but you'll probably go to Rome, to the Vatican, you know. That's where you... Or you'll go to Makkah. So, so this, for this reason, you know, one can... So the nationalism has been defined in this manner. And it's, it's a shrill nationalism. I'm just, you know, saying it out in a little bit of a jocular way. But it is incredible. The, the kind of slogans that are shouted at you if you were to do are religious slogans. Now, there's been an entire weaponization of even religious slogans uh, in, in the nation. Uh, fascism in an ex-colony, which continues to subject to imp imperialist plunder, inevitably has different characteristics from the fascism of imperialist countries. In particular, the people are plundered by global capital and homegrown uh, billionaire capitalists who have, got, who have de become deeply integrated with imperialism. Modi, of course, has taken this to a completely different plane in terms of this neoliberal uh, kind of an aggression. And I think uh, my fellow speakers are also going to talk a bit about what's happening, especially in central India among the indigenous communities. But basically what we're seeing is this uh, concerted assault on the working class, a sale of all public assets, public sectors. Uh, laws have been brought in now for workers, which basically undo 150 years of gains of the working class which includes minimum wages, job security, social security, and the eight-hour working day. So each of, the, of course, those labor codes have been passed in parliament, but by the sheer struggle of the working class, they have not yet been able to bring it into force. But the moment the workers become weaker by this entire division, it is obvious that that's what they're going to do. A fascism whips up mass frenzy against perceived internal enemies were projected as threats to the state, nation, civilization, culture, and even notions of public order and public health. To do this, it simultaneously drums up feelings of victimhood and injury and claims of pride and supremacy. The othering of religious minorities as the internal enemy is a constitutive aspect of Indian fascism. In the Indian context, uh, the internal enemies are the Muslims, the Christians, and going by the RSS textbook, the communists. No, it, that, there is this book called Bunch of Thoughts by Golwalkar. He's one of the RSS Guruji. So he writes the three internal enemies of India are the Christians, the Muslims, and the communists. Which I said, you know, it's a, if you're a Muslim and you're a communist, it's really... And if you're Muslim, communist, and you're queer, or Christian and queer, then it's, you know, it just keeps increasing the kind of... 
And there's also an alarming normalization of the privatization and outsourcing of violence against Muslims and Dalits to, an extra, to, to extrajudicial vigilante squads that has taken place. This is something that you've been seeing, lynchings, barging into people's houses. It's just become you know, something that it's not too disturbing anymore. The Sangh the Sang BJP Brigade pursues an elaborate strategy of, to manufacture consent around this combination of fear and hate, victimhood and supremacy. Like any populist, Modi has from the very beginning marketed himself as an anti-establishment crusader, invoking the sense of outrage among large, large sections of people against the miserable conditions of existence worsened by deprivation and, uh, and oppression. He has very cleverly managed to associate all the ills of the status quo with the prolonged Congress rule, the previous party in India, equating it further with corruption and dynastic politics. He calls for a Congress Mukt Bharat. In fact, BJP's call now is that Congress is the other party, the other major party. They want a Congress-free India. The Home Minister has gone a step free saying that we want an opposition-free India. That's the, that's the kind of parliamentary democratic, the, the democracy that they want to uh, engage in. The mobilization of masses through a concerted method of creating public con consensus for this divisive, hate-filled fascist project extends even to the diaspora. You've been listening to Stick Together. This episode, we've been hearing a speech from Clifton de Rosario, an Indian communist and unionist. If you'd like to hear any other episodes of Stick Together, head to the 3CR website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with the producer of the show, send us an email at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. To finish the show, we're going to hear a track from Punjabi MZ called Joby. Until next time, stick together. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.